You're listening to Writers on Writing, a show about the art, craft, and business of writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. Today, my guest is Melissa Broder, the author of the novels Death Valley, Milk Fed, and The Pisces, the essay collection So Sad Today, and five poetry collections, including Super Doom. Her books are translated in 10 languages. She's written for The New York Times, L.com, and New York's magazine, The Cut. She lives in Los Angeles. On the show, we talked about getting the first chapter right, externalizing the internal life of a character, outlining and plotting, grief and humor, using novels or pieces of novels that you'd put away, and more. And now for my talk with Melissa Broder. Melissa, I am so happy to talk to you about Death Valley. I am a sucker for um, fiction that takes place in the desert. Um, The Mojave, the Sonoran, the desert. I love the desert. But before we get into the book, let's first talk about how you found your way to writing. Sure. So um, in third grade, I had oh, I had been uh, a pretty be- poor student up until that point. And I mean, it's hard to be a poor student from fifth to from age five to age eight. But I, I was successful at doing that. And um, when I was in third grade, uh, we began doing poetry in our curriculum. And my teacher noticed that I had a knack for it. And she gave me a blank book to start recording my poems. And that's how it started. Uh, so I started getting into writing at age eight, because I was told that I uh, was good at it and because I enjoyed it. So it was that that confluence of of those two factors. And you started with poetry and you're still a poet. I am, although I haven't written a, po- a good poem in a couple of years. So I think that I've gone to the dark side of fiction and I think it is sort of eclipsed uh, the poetry skills for now. Do you find crossover though? Um, because I mean, some of your imagery is gorgeous, and and your sentences, and so I would imagine it's um, a part of you, right? Yes, I definitely uh, used my, po- particularly in writing Death Valley, I used my poetry editing skills um, to really concentrate and consolidate, um, and I also used some tools that I use for poetry, like things like word banks. Uh, I had I took a, I stole a lot of nouns from texts like Desert Solitaire or the Desert Survival Guide. Um, Desert Solitaire is a book by Edward Abbey that I absolutely yes. love. Yes, I have that book. yeah, love it's it. an awesome book. Um, and so what I would do is I make these these word banks, these lists of nouns. And um, as I'm writing or and as I'm editing, if I feel that I don't have the right words in a sentence or it's not descriptive enough, I'll sort of use these word banks to poach from. That's interesting. Can you say more about that? I mean, do you keep notebooks and, and you know, for for each project or what do you do? A lot of times the word banks themselves are just on loose paper. So I've got word banks stashed like all over my house. It's like a, it's a, it's a word bank domicile. But um, I think that in general, I keep my, I, I keep like this long list of notes on um, this. There's a, there's an app, a free app called Simple Note that I use uh, 
a lot in my writing because it's blank. It's like it's like the iPhone Notes app, but it's blank. And so I use Simple Note for a lot of areas of my life. But for my writing, I keep different documents. So I keep an outline on there. And then I keep um, a sort of repository of um, basically pieces that I've cut, but that I'm afraid that uh, I might want to put back in. I have like a, a cut from, I had a cut from Death Valley document. And then I have another document that's just sort of like miscellaneous ideas and trash. And um, that's actually how there's a, there's a character in the book called Mustache Oriole. And that's actually, I could tell you the story of how Mustache Oriole came to be in the book. Um, and that came straight out of my miscellaneous refuse and other ideas uh, document. Interesting. Okay. Well, there's some, there's a lot of questions mounting here, but first let's get to Death Valley and tell me how you knew this was going to be a book, how this came to you. So um, in the, in December of 2020, my dad was in a car accident and he was on the East coast. I was on the West coast and it was during COVID. So we weren't allowed in to see him, unfortunately. And um, at least not for the first couple of months. And I was living in Los Angeles. Um, my sister is living in Las Vegas. And I was trying to escape a feeling. I didn't know at the time that the feeling was anticipatory grief. I just thought that my traditional uh, levels of anxiety and depression were sort of have, spawning new babies. And I was trying to escape this feeling. And um, I was driving back and forth to my sister's across the desert Um Unfortunately, you can't escape a feeling because the feelings inside you. But um, and I was driving through Baker, California, which is home of the world's largest thermometer, when this idea came to me of this magic cactus that a person could go inside and encounter their loved ones and get more time with them. So you could have and you could encounter them at various stages of their life. So almost like a time traveling cactus. Um <laughs> and the first line of the book came to me in that moment as well. Uh, and what ended up happening was I I took later, as I started to write the book, I took a separate desert recon trip. So I went back out into the desert this time to really explore because I knew that the book was going to be set in the desert. And I was in Death Valley and I went for a walk in the morning Um and in an area called Zabriskie Point, where uh, it's a very touristy area, nobody ever gets lost there. Well, I got extremely lost. I took a side path and I, um, you know, and I, I was I had not brought water with me, which is when I later read the Desert Survival book, uh, obviously not something you're supposed to do. I had Coke Zero with me. My phone was dead. There was no reception in that area. And I was like panicking, crying. How long have I been out here? It had been about 20 minutes. Um, when I finally, I, I got very cut up trying to make it back to my car. There was a, I had to climb up a rock face because basically I couldn't remember. I knew I had to go up, but I didn't, I couldn't find the path. And so I climbed, I panicked, which is what you're not supposed to do. And I climbed up this rock face, got all cut up. When I got back to my car, about 45 minutes uh, after I first realized I was lost, uh, once I stopped crying, I, I was really delighted because I realized, oh, okay, this is what has to happen in the book. She's going to get lost and she's this protagonist and she's going to get lost for more than 45 minutes. Mm. 
Uh, well, you know, Zabriskie point, I don't know if you've seen the movie by Antonioni, but, um, you know, I was thinking of Zabriskie point a little bit when I was reading, reading your book, although your book is nothing like the movie, but, um, I didn't, I, how much research did you do? Did you find yourself, I mean, you said <clears throat> desert solitaire was important to you. Did you do a lot of research or did you just spend time out there? How did you really uh, get the desert um, so right? It was both, you know, I had already, I was already somewhat steeped in the desert living in Los Angeles and I go out there at least once or twice a year um, for the past 10 years. So I already had that sort of tactile knowledge, but in terms of knowing the cycles of, um, you know, the way creatures operate, I hadn't thought about the fact that most of the animals are nocturnal, right? Which makes sense. Or things like, how long can you go without water? How long mm -hmm. can you go without food? And the book that was most helpful to me was a book called The Desert Survival Guide. And it's really um, like a military, uh, it's really for people who are much tougher and much more um, sort of adventurous than I am in, in the desert. Um, and it's it's by a man named David Alloway, The Desert Survival Guide. And what that book really taught me was how long can you go without water? How long can you go without food? building a fire, things that are really the hierarchy of needs and which are things, you know, that as a modern city girl, um, I don't really think about. And this was helpful for me in plotting the book too. And in terms of pacing, because I was like, okay, well, here's when she's going to have to, we're going to need to to make this water last X amount of time. All right. She's not going to be hungry. I didn't, you know, I hadn't thought about that when you're, when you're dying of thirst, or when you're when you're dehydrated, your hunger valve shuts off, and you can actually go. Um, I believe it's over like twenty days without food. So water is going to be a priority. Fire is going to be a priority because she's going to be cold at night. Food less of a priority. So this it really helped me to structure the the lost in the desert part of the book. Mm. Well, I would love to hear you read from Death Valley. Absolutely. Um, I'll read the first chapter. Great. Sure. Chapter one. I pull into the desert town at sunset, feeling empty. I felt empty the whole drive from Los Angeles and hoped that my arrival would alleviate the emptiness. So when the emptiness is not alleviated, not even momentarily, all emptiness alleviators are temporary. I feel emptier. Help me not be empty, I say to God in the Best Western parking lot. Since I don't turn to God very often, I feel self-conscious when I do. I'm not sure what I'm allowed to ask for, and I worry that I shouldn't want the things I want. Are my requests too specific? I should probably ask to simply be happy doing God's will, though I've heard it said that when you're doing God's will, you feel like you're flowing with a great river, not against it, so it seems like the happy feeling should just come naturally. Earlier today, a friend texted me a quote by Kierkegaard, life is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be experienced. Ordinarily, I'd do nothing more than mark this kind of text message with a heart, maybe respond with the word yes and move on. But because of the low place I've been in, I saw the quote as a life raft, as though I were a small version of me adrift in a bowl of milk. And the quote was the lone cheerio I had to grab onto. Halfway between LA and the desert town, I stopped at a Circle K to pee and get some beef jerky. 
On the public toilet, I tried to meditate using the Kierkegaard quote as a mantra, but the quote only made me feel worse. I realized that I was doing the exact opposite of what the quote suggested, trying to solve a problem, the problem of me and my mood, rather than just experiencing it. But how do you just experience things? In addition to the beef jerky, Jack Link's brand, sweet and hot, I bought a large cup of black coffee and two cans of sugar-free Red Bull, a decision that is now coming back to haunt me in the motel parking lot. Some bad electricity is going down in my nervous system, and I can't tell what's caffeine-induced sensitivity and what could be a real physical problem. When I look at the glowing blue welcome sign, it appears to be vibrating. The best Western is at the edge of town, and beyond it lies nothingness, a desolate stretch of sand and rock peppered with dead brush all the way to the hills. I play it fake cool to the dust, casually unloading my black duffel from the trunk, but my hands are trembling. Am I dying? This thought triggers an unexpected surge of tenderness, as though I am a child who needs comforting. In the settling dusk, I try to think of a positive self-affirmation, the kind that one woman I know has written on post-its stuck to her bathroom mirror, a behavior that makes me judge her as a person, though there's really nothing wrong with it, and I wish I didn't. What I come up with is, you have a good reason to be depressed. The phrase serves as a soothing reminder that my doominess isn't baseless. I am going to clutch it like a blankie as I move through the gloom, deeper and more alarming than my typical sea levels. My raison de depression, if I were to convey it briefly in an email, is thus. Hi, five months ago, my father was critically injured in a car accident. Unfortunately, he is still in the ICU. As a result, I am overextended and cannot fulfill your request at this time. Best, me. One nice thing about a tragic situation is having an excuse to say no to everything. Nothing says, don't ask me for shit, like ICU. It's simple, effective, succinct. At the same time, my prevailing compulsion is to recount every stage of the whole ordeal, as though by omission, I'll fail to convey the prolonged awfulness of the situation, or worse, I'll lose some of the time in which my father and I have existed on earth together. When asked, how are you? Never a good question. I keep bursting into monologue, his accident, his broken neck, the aspiration, the sedation, the surgery, the failure to wean off the ventilator, the prolonged unconsciousness, the tracheotomy, the awakening, the bronchoscopy and five-second death, the second death, the decision, the really awakening, the weaning success, the collar, the sound of his voice, the pneumonia, the falling unconscious again. Sometimes, mid-monologue, I catch myself calling my father's tracheal tube a trach and his ventilator a vent, a breezy familiarity that disgusts me, as though the life support machines are now my friends. For the sake of narrative clarity, I now do my best to organize the flood of events into temporal subheadings like unconsciousness one and resuscitation two. During the period of unconsciousness one, my younger sister and I went to visit our father in the ICU most evenings. Through our tears, we smiled at the nurses, feeling righteous and kind. What devoted children we were, what bringers of light. From our mouths burbled fountains of I love yous. 
We could not stop saying it if we tried. We tucked him in each night, reading aloud from Pat the Bunny, The Great Blueness, and other bedtime classics from our faraway past. We sang Puff the Magic Dragon, and the bear went over the mountain, the ventilator swishing behind us for rhythm. It is easier to have an intimate relationship with the unconscious than the conscious, the dead than the living. As my father slumbered, I created a fantasy version of him, resurrecting the man from my youth before his depression set in. I re-entered a world of home-cooked stews, tobacco smells, cozy sweatshirts, plants, and birds, a realm of warmth and worldly cynicism where I was always on the inside of his skepticism. My father is more at ease with children than with adults. At 21, I was surprised to find that I could be a them, displaced beyond the gates of his emotional garden. Now, at 41, I told myself a new story. If my father survived, if he awoke and had some kind of meaningful recovery, then I would have the father from my childhood back. But I am no longer a child. When my father regained consciousness, he wouldn't make eye contact with me. I looked at his hands and feet instead. The feet were easy, calluses, freckle on big toe, him. But looking at his left hand was like seeing him naked, like I should have to ask permission first. What was once his dominant hand, his scrawling, gardening, cooking, and hauling hand, now lay limp with nails overgrown and skin covered in purple blotches. Gently, I took his hand in mine. He allowed me to hold it for a few seconds. Then he pulled away. He probably doesn't know who we are, says my sis- said my sister. But I took it personally. And in the periods of consciousness that followed, I mounted a new campaign to connect with him. It had taken me years to see clearly that I was not the cause of my father's depression. Still, I never stopped hoping that I could be an exception to it. Now the accident was a second hurdle to overcome, and I wanted to be the magic daughter. I'd live in the garden once more. But before I could take root, my father fell unconscious again. This time, I fled to the desert. I'm here at the Best Western for a week under the pretext of figuring out the desert section of my next novel. If I'm honest, I came to escape a feeling, an attempt that's already going poorly, because unfortunately, I've brought myself with me, and I see, as the last pink light creeps out to infinity, that I am still the kind of person who makes another person's coma all about me. Mm, Thank you so much. Before we bring Melissa back on, a few words about Patreon. I hope you'll consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writers on writing. A few dollars a month helps us to continue bringing the show to you. We've produced one or two interviews weekly since 1998. You can also help the show by buying your books at bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing where you'll find books by authors who've been on the show, as well as other books we like. And now, more with Melissa Broder. That that was such a strong first chapter and such a um, bittersweet, funny last line that I am curious how much you worked on that chapter. I mean, you've had other books published, so it's not like being a debut novelist where you just have to get it as perfect as possible. And yet that first chapter is so solid. Um, Talk about that first chapter. 
I always feel like I'm a debut novelist and I always want to get the first chapter as strong as it can be. Um, I'm currently writing another novel and I think I've been working on the first chapter for about a month. Um, and, you know, that being said, I also want the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chapters. I edit them like poetry as well. Um, I don't want any extra lines. What I do is I email myself chunks of the book as a PDF and I change the font to a font that I never use and so that I can try to divorce myself from seeing it as something that I wrote. And that really can alleviate some of the preciousness because I try to read it as though I am a, a reader. Um, and so I'll read it on, what I'll do is I'll email myself chunks of the chunks of the document as a PDF uh, in a different font and I'll read it on my iPhone. Um, if I had a Kindle, I would do it on a Kindle, but I don't have a Kindle. Um, but I probably should get a Kindle actually, but nonetheless, um, and I'll, I'll continually keep emailing and emailing and emailing myself these chunks in these different fonts um, until, because I want to see it with as cold of an eye as possible when I'm editing. Mm. Um, so earlier you mentioned having an outline on simple note. Are you an outliner? You know, I am an outliner, Um I see my outline sort of as the ship of Theseus in the sense that all of the, a lot of times, many of the parts change, practically all of them. Um, but by the end, you know, is it still the same ship? Well, yes, because the outline still exists and it's still the same document, but all of the parts have changed. Um, now for my first two books, my first two novels, the Pisces and milk fed, I actually dictated the first drafts. Um, using Siri and the Simple Notes app. And I, that, I think, I came up with that idea because, um, to for that process, because um, basically I used to live in New York City and I would write poems on the subway. And um, I like to write in motion. When I moved to Los Angeles, I couldn't be typing poems when I was on the 405 highway. So I started dictating. Um, and all of my line breaks disappeared. My language became more conversational. And that was how I started writing essays for my first prose mm -hmm. book, which was so sad today. When I got the idea for my first novel, The Pisces, I thought, well, what if I, I don't, I, I didn't, I wasn't sure if I could write a novel, you know, as a poet, it's like, why would you say in 300 pages, what you can say in three pages. So really for me, the big challenge is how do I get enough clay that I can then begin to sculpt? Because the sculpting, the editing for me as a poet is very natural, but the expansiveness of the first draft is very unnatural for me or was very unnatural for me. And so what I did was I thought, okay, well, what if I just dictate three paragraphs a day? And that's what I did. And I didn't go back and change anything. So even if words were wrong, even if I knew it was wrong, like if Siri translated them incorrectly onto the simple note document, I didn't go back and fix it. I just let it be as rough and messy as possible. But before doing that, I came up with an outline and I did that for both Milkfed and the Pisces and stayed pretty true, not to the outline as it was, but if something changed as I was going along, I would immediately change the outline so that the outline then always reflected accurately what I had. Hmm. So you knew where you were headed, how the book would end? Exactly. But that being said, um, the Pisces... Milkfed changed a great deal and the ending of Milkfed completely changed um, because it wasn't until much later in um, editing that book. There's a there's a character, there's two characters in the book or there's one character and one I'd say archetypal symbol. Um, there's a the archetypal symbol is a golem 
um, which the protagonist, Rachel, sculpts in an art therapy class um, or an art in, in a not class, but in, our, in a, a therapy session um, where and it's a golem, which is the Yiddish sort of mythological Frankenstein. She has a lot of body dysmorphia. So she's sculpting out of out of modeling clay what she's so afraid of becoming if she allows herself to eat what she wants. And then there is um, the rabbi of Prague, Rabbi Judah Ben Judah Lo Ben Bezalel, who um, was the first creator of a golem, um, I believe, in the 1600s. And those two, that both that symbol and that character, um, were not in many of the first drafts. They came to be later on, but they're very crucial, um, especially to the ending of the book. And so that whole thing changed. I mean, that whole outline changed. Hmm. So. You also you mentioned plotting, and so along along those lines, then how much plotting do you do, or do you, like is your outline is it more like okay, this is what has to happen in this chapter, and and or do, does it go way into detail in terms of what you know what's at stake, what does the character want here, what do you know those sorts of things. No, because every time I try, I've tried to read a couple of those like dramatic drama, dramatic arc books or the uh -huh. hero's journey type books. I mean, I do love, um, you know, I do love a hero's journey and I do love, like I love Joseph Campbell. I love the power of myth um, because I love myth and archetypes and myth play heavily in all of my novels. But, um, but in terms of those books about like, you know, dramatic arc and the hero's journey and pacing and. I have never found, I, I get very confused. I feel like I'm in seventh grade uh, <laughs> algebra and I just don't understand, um, you know, what an exponent is. Like, it doesn't make sense to me. And um, so it really, for me, it has to come more from, be born more from the inside out. And then in edits, I start to think about things like, um, you know, uh, well, basically, how do we speak? I start to, when I'm in drafting, I really, I don't think about the reader. When I'm drafting a book, I, I divorce myself from the reader almost entirely because as much as I can, you know, I really, it's really being written for me because otherwise, if there's any modicum of perfectionism, the first draft will never get written. But mm -hmm. then in edits, that's when I begin to think about lucidity, communication, pacing, um, you know, narrative drive. And a lot of times I have to take a lot out um, in order to create that drive. So I think any, any sort of, it, like any, any plotting uh, initially is instinctual. And I think it's becoming more instinctual, the more novels I've written, but, um, but it's, it's not, there's not, I don't think about like, you know, act structures or, um, I don't think about, I really don't even think about goals or character motivation, um, you know, or all those things we're told to think about in the first drafts, uh, because it just confuses me. Mm. There is one book I've read that I found um, very helpful. Um, and it's, um, it's a book called Wired for Story. Oh, and sure. it, yeah, about and it's about suspense and neuroscience and the way and that to me, I that book I really understood because it's really talks about emotional suspense. And for me, my books, one of my biggest challenges as a writer is I'm a very interior person. I'm a very inwardly focused person too, and inwardly focused. And so my characters tend to be very, um, you know, thought feeling 
internal life. And so really, how do you, how do you externalize and externalizing and action are big challenges for me. Hmm. Well, let's talk about the cactus scene. Yes. How interesting. I'm so curious how that came to you and, and, you know, reading death Valley, it also felt that you have a lot of fun with fiction Um, and the cactus scene sort of brought that home for me. Will you talk about that? Sure. So, um, yeah, there's several times where uh, this character goes inside a cactus. Uh, I believe it's, I believe she enters the cactus a total of three times. It might be four in the book. I think it's three. Yes. And um, I don't know. It was, I don't, you know, when I come up with these ideas, like when this idea for, okay, so she goes in this magic cactus and inside this cactus and um, encounters both, you know, first her, first her father, and then her husband who's sick, she encounters her husband as a child um, in trying to have compassion for him. This is something she desires to see him as, you know, a child of child of God or child of the universe. And she literally does see him as a child. She also gets to encounter her father as a child, her father as a teen. And then um, I won't spoiler it uh, for the last time she goes in. But um, there's a sort of, you know, it, when I come, when these ideas come to me, I'll tell maybe one or two friends. My husband is always my first editor. So I'll often, you know, float some ideas by him before the book's even written. And, um, you know, I, t- I told my friend Kate Durbin, the writer, and she, you know, and, and people are always skeptical. They're like, how is she going to pull this off? Right. Oh, a woman falls in love with a merman. Oh, um, oh, <laughs> a woman goes inside a giant cactus. Like how, you know, right. Oh, you know, they, they're sort of like, of course. Oh, yes. Right. Melissa she goes inside a giant cactus and encounters her loved ones as, as loved one as a child. But there's something where I'll get obsessed with an idea and I can't put it down. I can't let it go. And that is the, uh, that that's really where it, you know, that's, that's really where the obsession. And I just, I, I see it through and I did have a lot of fun. I do have a lot of fun when I'm writing, uh, not always, but I think you can tell when a writer is having fun and I think it makes it, it can make it more enjoyable for the reader. When you're writing, are you at all thinking about the marketplace? Are you thinking about, you know, what, what reviewers might say, what, you know, people are going to think. I mean, you said your first draft, you're writing for you, but does the marketplace ever sort of enter your writing space? Um, not when I'm not in the drafting. I think sometimes I'll check in with my agent and say, Hey, here's an idea I'm thinking about. Uh, what do you think about this just in general? And then, um, sometimes she'll, there's been times I had, I had, sometimes she'll kind of talk to me about the way that it might be perceived in terms of what's going on culturally right now, which I sort of, I usually ignore that part because I'm just like, well, this will, this is going to be three years down the road. So mm-hmm. it's going to be an entirely different culture. But my agent is a brilliant editor. So um, she's really and um, and creatively really smart. So, you know, if I'll listen to her, but but then I mostly just go off and 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 do what I want. And because it's like it has to really come. I think this is going to sound corny, but the idea really has to come from the soul. It's like any long-term relationship. You know, I have to be in love with it because writing a novel is such a long haul. 
that there has to be that fire in the beginning uh, and that momentum and that love. It's really like a, almost like a falling in love or an obsession. It's, it's really an obsession. And so, um, and then I'll, but yeah, and then I, and then I don't think about the marketplace, but I will, when I'm editing, um, I don't think about the marketplace, but I think about the reader, which is like, I guess another way of saying, thinking about the marketplace, because who is the marketplace? The marketplace is, are there going to be readers? Are the, re- are the readers, is this going to be enjoyable? And as a reader myself, um, an avid reader myself, uh, I'm also editing for, for me as a reader, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, it does. It does. Um, you know, as you were talking about your agent, talking about the culture and, and you saying, well, that's, you know, that's years down the road. Reddit figures in the novel quite a bit. And some of my writer friends debate about including social media, including things that will date the book. Some feel it will date it. Others feel it's a part of the times we live in, so should be included. Obviously, you're on the side of including markers um, of your era. But can you talk about that? I mean, do you ever think, maybe I should leave this out, but I can't because it's such a part of the story? Sure. So, uh, you know, as a poet, I'm very, in my own work, I never include brand names. I like a sort of timelessness. I try to make my nouns as, I guess you could say primal. Uh, my my nouns are as prim- primal as possible, or as uh, they're they're all things that could be could have been found, perhaps words that could have been found in the Bible, let's say, right? Um, so they could they could have been understood in the past, uh, and they they will hopefully be understood in the future. But when social media makes its way into my books, uh, it's often due to an obsession and a sense of humor. And Reddit to me is such a funny online community because it's basically all comments and comment sections are something that really titillate me. And so Reddit really became a character in this book. And I hope, I had a poetry teacher who said to me, you can do whatever you want in a poem, but you have to teach the reader how to live in it. And so my hope is that even if there is no longer a Reddit down the road, that I'm giving readers a sense of what this community is like. And they will be able to understand what, okay, this is what this is. This is what this was. It was this sort of both half cesspool and half font of wisdom that existed when the book was written. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, you know, and regarding humor, I mean, you write about grief without dragging, dragging the reader down. And the husband as well, the husband character, um, so much humor there. The supermarket scene, I think, is just so funny. Um, talk about, you know, I mean, do you, it, it feels to me that you're just sort of a funny person. And so the humor just is part of you and it's, it has to be a part of your writing. Is that accurate? I mean, I know I... When I'm drafting particularly, but also as a, I write for, in some ways, what I might want to read. And, you know, there are certainly books that are melancholy and don't contain humor that I adore. I'm looking at my shelf right now and there's a giant stack of Marguerite de Ross. She's, I, I wouldn't call her a funny writer and there's a lot of melancholia and longing. But in general, one thing I found when I was, my father passed in May of uh, 2021. 
And when I was looking for books on grief, what I couldn't find and what I wanted was something that that talked about grief with some sense of humor that wasn't maudlin. And at the same time, really conveys the the lostness that one can feel and the, and the powerlessness, which to me is very similar to getting lost in the desert, being lost in the desert of grief, uh, but also had some humor to it. Because there, there in the six months that my own father was in the ICU, there was a lot, there were a lot of funny things. The discussion of whether to pull the plug on someone, um, there's humor in that. Like, the, you know, when when one person, me, is thinking that, oh no, we're prolonging this person's life, death, we're not prolonging this person's life. And I am so convinced that the humane thing is to take this this man who has been, suffering and has died three times off of, you know, he's been on a feeding tube for, for months. He's been on a ventilator in and out of consciousness for months. The nurses are saying, I don't know that he wants to live, right? I'm getting this medical information. The doctor is saying, oh, well, this is, uh, if it was my mother, uh, who was a smoker who had heart issues, I don't think we're going to get this car up up the hill. I think the kind thing to do, right? So I'm telling my mother, I think this is the kind thing to do. And I feel that there's this sense of nobility in it. And then, and we don't, we don't pull the plug. We don't take him off the ventilator. And then weeks later, my father is speaking to us and making jokes. And I have to say to my sister, don't tell dad I wanted to pull the plug. There's, that's funny, right? The human arrogance, that there's, there's humor in that, right? And so I think that, for me, I wanted to capture that. There were a lot of funny things that happened when my own father was in the ICU. And also, how do you get through something if there is no humor? Mm-hmm. At one point when my father was in the ICU and he had been transferred to um, a different hospital and then had to be transferred back, my sister and I thought we we didn't hear from them about the transfer. And we're like, they lost dad. They just <laughs> lost him. I mean, that's funny. Yeah, it is funny. Well, you know, you know, you write because you write nonfiction. You write essays. Um, had you at all considered writing this as a memoir? No, I don't think I'll write another memoir until I'm dead. Uh, you know, I, I, my so sad today book of essays. I actually did over the past year. I was working on a journal project, um, and I, it was November to November, and I got from November to about. September. And it was sort of this cataloging of, or it was sort of an attempt to find a home within myself. But really, I think what I was trying to do was eradicate uh, challenging feelings and quote unquote, be okay. Like I just want to be done with things like grief and depression. And um, I've decided I'm not going to publish it. Um, But I think that it will go into my next novel. So there will be a meta quality to the next novel where I use a lot of parts of it. Uh, which is actually, you know, you asked about the marketplace and in Death Valley, the protagonist uh, is writing a book, is writing a novel. And the novel that she is writing is a full novel that I wrote a couple of years ago that will forever remain in a drawer. Um, because I think that there was a bit of a cynical, I wasn't obsessed with it. I wasn't in love. And while I wasn't writing it for the marketplace per se, it came as more of an in a. It came as more of a, 
a plot and strategic idea rather than a passion. And that's why it didn't work. But I did, I was able to sort of use the very basic elements of it and my misgivings with it as this protagonist's, uh, what she is writing. So there's a meta quality. Mm. Do you, do you do that? I mean, do you have projects that you'll, you'll go far with and then put them aside? Mm. The main two are this journal project, which I really spent a lot of time on and this other novel, which I also spent a lot of time on. And um, I picked it, I wrote it before I wrote my novel Milk Fed, and then I picked it back up again after I finished Milk Fed to do edits. And then I abandoned ship when I drove by that uh, giant thermometer in the desert and thought, magic cactus, this is the way to go. So you might pick it up again. No, no, that, that novel is dead. Okay. How do you know when, when a novel dies? How do you know when it's like, you know, I've, I've, I'm done? When, I guess it's like, how do you know when a marriage is done? Mm. Hmm. I mean, I haven't been divorced, but I assume that there's a point where you just know. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe you never fully, fully know, hmm. but I think people know enough to know, okay, it's time to get divorced. And I think the same might be true <laughs> for the novel. Like there's nothing left here worth salvaging. Oh, I, yeah, I guess, I guess. Um, hmm. Best Western. Um, it, it made me want to go to a Best Western <laughs> reading your book. Um, talk about Best Western and why, why the Best Western is in your book. Well, I have spent a lot of time at Best Westerns. Um, My sister's house in Vegas was very small. And so I was staying at a Best Western all the time there. Um, But the book is not autofiction because the protagonist does not have enough points for a free night. But I've earned many free nights at Best Westerns. Uh, But I don't know. I, I love, you know, nowadays on places like Instagram, you'll see people posing um, in Cinque Terre, you'll see people posing in the five towns in Italy at the same five-star hotel, you know, overlooking the same cliff and, or people are really like, there's, there's sommeliers, right? Talking about uh, fine wines. And I like to approach things like breakfast cereal and the best Western as though I am a sommelier of sort of um, these lower brow entities. And I found a lot of things very funny about the best Western. I find the grab and go breakfast funny. I find it weird to have to choose what you're going to be having the next day. Uh, I find the, the use of many geometric shapes. They just so many that, you you know, as it says in the book, if, if there, if a geometric shape can be incorporated in the best Western, it's going in. So these whole cultures, these cultures of things that are not super highbrow. um, But yet I have, I have, I feel a lot of love for the Best Western. I've always loved a motel, uh, always loved a motel. And I like that the Best Western, there is, despite, it, minus the, all the geometric shapes, there is something very simple about it. Uh, but, and and Holiday Inn is, I'd say, my number one. I love a Holiday Inn. But Best Western, I'd say, is my number two. And, it, and it's a close second. And there's a feeling for me of, I could stay at a really fancy hotel and spend a ton of money but the best Western isn't that far behind. <laughs> so, you know, I feel like I'm getting something over on the, the hotel industrial complex when I say that. And Jethra, Jethra is a great character. Where did Jethra come from? 
Jethra, um, so Jethra works at the front desk at the Best Western, and um, there's also the character Zip who works at the front desk. Um, where did Jethra come from? I think that she was inspired. She's sort of a hybrid between a woman that I knew who is a very jolly Eastern European woman. Um, my friend Alex Dimitrov, who told me that he's a poet, who talked to me about what a Bulgarian funeral is like. Um, and uh, he's thanked in the acknowledgments. And um, I don't know. And from my imagination. Hmm. Well, before we go, I just I wanted to ask you if you you mentioned your husband being a reader or you run ideas by him. Do you have readers um, that you that read your stuff before it goes to your agent? He's he's my main one. So he goes first. Sometimes my friend Kate Durbin and then it goes to my agent. So very few, actually. Hmm. It seems like when you when a writer has a lot of readers, it can become really confusing. Yes. There's so much feedback coming. It's like, what do I pay attention to? Right. And I mean, sometimes that can be good if if you're finding a commonality, right? Like it's sort of that workshop, that old workshop principle where like if eight people in the workshop are telling you the same thing, you might you might want to listen to it. But yeah, I've never I don't know. I've I've I will send to some other readers before it's published, but my agent to me is such a great reader and she does make Death Valley. There were very few edits. It was very clean when I handed it, when I turned it into her, but with Milkfed and the Pisces, there were so many rounds of edits that uh, with her, that I kind of feel like between my husband and my agent, there are two readers who I deeply trust and my agent I see her not just as a business partner, but also as a creative partner. So in that sense, uh, you know, I feel like I can really trust her, her mm-hmm. guidance in that way. It's not like I'm like, oh, this has to be perfect before I send it to Meredith. It's right. like she is a reader. Hmm. Well, we're going to talk more in February. You're going to come down to Orange County to the Arvita bookstore. So yes. We have much more to talk about in February. But before we go, do you have any any last words or or words of wisdom for um, the writers kind of trying to make it through writing a novel? Read, keep reading, allow for alchemy, allow for life to influence life in the moment uh, to influence the book um, and steal nouns. Mm. <laughs> steal nouns. Steal nouns. Bill Nouns. Thank you so much. And uh, of course, yeah, I really, I look forward to seeing you in February. Thank you. Thanks, Barbara. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. That was Melissa Broder, author of Death Valley. If like me, you like fiction that takes place in the desert, check out my book, Palm Springs Noir, published by Akashic. 14 stories that take place around the Coachella Valley. You can find it on our bookshop.org page or anywhere that you buy books. Thanks to all of you for taking the time to listen and a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters who help make this show possible. I also have a Substack page called Pen on Fire where I talk about writing and include more from authors who've been on the show. 
Thank you to Travis Barrett, who does our music and sound editing. And by the way, if you like the music you hear on the show, you can find an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify. Search out the artist Just My Type. Travis also has other music on there under his name. You can access our archive shows 25 years worth at writersonwriting.com. And if you want to get in touch with us, email writersonwritingpodcast at gmail.com. You can reach Travis Barrett at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And in the meantime, remember to stay in the chair.